it's okay to cross the street to avoid making small talk. Welcome to AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. I'm your host, Ramia Amudan. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdel-Majid. And hey, I'm going to ask Nasreen in a second, but the quote of the week was from this book, Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking by Susan Cain. And this was something that Nasreen brought up a while back for a trending conversation. And I thought, oh, sweet. This is interesting. Picked up the book. Can't put it down. So good. You know, the quote specifically is from a list that Susan Cain calls the manifesto for introverts. And everything and anything you want to ask and explore about introverts and extroverts is mentioned and deeply researched in this book uh being comfortable in your own skin as a thinker if you do identify as an introvert you know the power of non-talkers and quieter people specifically in leadership and also the exploration of over time character being turned into personality and how the priorities have really changed in the world on what we think of as a leadership quality And of course, how to appreciate yourself overall if you're an introvert or the introverts around you. And really, one thing that really stuck out to me is pretending to be an extrovert. If you do that, she's saying, hey, it's a skill. I can attest to that, definitely. Now let's go over to the SELA homepage, Center for Equitable Library Access. And we are checking in with our friends from SELA today. But here are the three featured titles on the homepage. Into the Broken Lands by Tanya Huff. This is a fantasy title. Number two, Spare by the Duke of Sussex, Prince Harry. This is a memoir. And the last one up there, Poster Girl by Veronica Roth. And this is a sci-fi title. Nisreen, before we move on to the next part of our show, what do you have for some audiobook news? So we got Viola Davis has achieved the rare and elite EGOT status after winning a Grammy Award for the audiobook of her memoir, Finding Me. And according to Variety, she has become the 18th person to win an, uh, to win a Grammy Award, Oscar, and Tony Award, joining actors and filmmakers. So Davis's memoir takes readers through her illustrious career, taking her readers through her casting for ABC's How to Get Away with Murder, which, you know, pumped Ooh. her up, fired up her career for sure. Uh, Davis also details the racism and incidents she experienced growing up in Rhode Island and within Hollywood. I felt that was interesting to bring up. She's a tremendous woman. She has gone through so much turmoil. And honestly, I didn't know her until How to Get Away with Murder, but actually she's done a lot, a lot before that on TV and I think behind the scenes as well and just bringing herself up as a a black woman, a dark-skinned woman, and really the, the kind of insights and lived experience that she shares in relationships, personal growth, and all the kinds of rubbish that she had to put up with um, throughout her life. I think it would be an absolute must read. And um, thank you. Thank you, Nisreen, for bringing that up. Now let's find out what's coming up in a second on AMI Audiobook Review. We're talking to our friends Karen and Sila about banned and challenged books as we wrapped up Freedom to Read Week, mid-February. You 
you're tuned into AMI Audiobook Review, the weekly podcast where we chat all things audiobooks. And we kick off our month with a chat from our friends at the Center for Equitable Library Access. You can visit celalibrary.ca for all their books and the enormous catalog. But uh, we catch up with Karen McKay and Teresa Power from CELAC. Teresa is the content and access librarian. Karen is the communications manager. And we wrapped up Freedom to Read Week mid-February of this year. And I think it's important that we bring back, pull it up and bring back this conversation or the conversations around Freedom to Read Uh, getting into challenged books, banned books, and even things that are going on around North America today. So first of all, to start off on a really interesting note, Karen, can you tell us about Farzana Doctor? Um, She was awarded the Freedom to Read Award. What is this? And bring us up to speed. Yeah, so this award is always uh, offered during the Freedom to Read Week, which is an annual event that encourages Canadians to think about and confirm their commitment to intellectual freedom. So Farzana Doctor won this award um, in part because of the themes of the books that she writes. She's an Ontario novelist. She's an activist. She's a psychotherapist of Indian ancestry. And she won in 2011 the Dane Ogilvy Prize from the Writers' Trust of Canada for an emerging lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender writer. So she's got a few books. Um, Her Six Meters of Payment won the 2012 Lombada Literary Award and was shortlisted for the Toronto Book Award. And her most recent work is a 2020 novel that explores the issues um, around female genital mutilation. And so uh, she also has a poetry collection, which came out in 2022, called You Still Look the Same. She's been um, a highly vocal activist around issues on um, environmental issues, gender violence, LGBTQ rights. And she actually co-founded the End Female Genital Mutilation in Canada. uh, And she speaks out on that topic a lot. So her books really are grounded in her worldview and in activism. And she writes on all these themes that are, you know, often challenged or difficult for folks. And so that's why she received the award. It makes a lot of sense, um, at least on first glance, why these books would be challenged, why her viewpoints uh, and perspectives would be challenged at all. So let's get into this, actually, because there are examples uh, now or in the past where we might not be so sure why certain books were challenged or uh, so heavily you know, contradicted in, in being available for people to read. And... If we're going to be honest, Harry Potter is the first thing that I think of. So, Teresa, let's start with your commentary on Harry Potter. Yeah, I mean, just in the terms of um, of this conversation of banned books, the first thing that really came to my mind was actually Harry Potter. And I remember it so distinctly, um, I think, uh, because it was also the first time that I heard about people wanting to ban a book. And I distinctly remember being in the car actually I think with one of my parents and the radio was on and yeah they were talking about Harry Potter and how awful Harry Potter was um that it promoted you know witchcraft that it was too dark um and you know too challenging for kids uh amongst a number of other things as well. And I, I just remember thinking, what? Like, I started reading Harry Potter, the first book 
when it first came out and it was so perfect for my age and I grew up reading those books and they were a sensation and I think that they um, encouraged a whole generation of people to to read and to love reading and to grow up loving reading Mm -hmm. so they had a huge impact on me but people really did not like them now it, it the first Harry Potter book came out in the 90s right I can't tell you the date but I think it was the late 90s and um now in 2023 there are many many alike series to Harry Potter we can think of or discuss so many similar kind of titles or concepts um, that just are based off of the kind of book Mm -hmm. Harry Potter is. But at that time, this was a huge controversy. Huge controversy. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're absolutely right. It really encouraged, I think, a whole genre to just explode. Mm -hmm. And I could see, you know, we went from witches witches and wizards to years and years of vampire reading um which would have been equally as challenged i am sure but for me my memory is that that really started with the harry potter series now karen um What's interesting to me is Harry Potter, the books were challenged up until probably now. Um, But what's changing around the context of challenged books is that now the author, J.K. Rowling, seems to have more on her plate about her perspectives being challenged and then therefore the books taking a hit um, that way. Yeah, so that's a really interesting angle to to take on this. So um, folks may be familiar with some of her statements around um, specifically transgender individuals. And um, there's been, you know, lots of writing back and forth. A friend of mine uh, who is a professor for women's studies just sent me an article not too long ago because we've had these conversations. Um, and there's been a, um, a book pub- or an article rather published in the National Post about whether any of her actual writings, not her her social media, but mm-hmm. her actual writings are transphobic. Um, and she has tra- a trans character in one of her books. And the author who did this study about her books said that they're, you know, they couldn't find anything. And they're, they're trans, I believe that they're trans or they're sort of trans friendly, like they have a, um, an identity that's associated with the trans community. And, you know, it's interesting because the the whole idea behind Harry Potter is sort of standing up for yourself, standing up to bullies, you know, fighting for what's right. So the situation with with J.K. Rowling is interesting. You know, some people are are trying to burn her books or ban her books or you know just make her books go away. And the the whole issue around banning books kind of delves into or connects with the idea of deplatforming. Like, what ideas mm. do we want to hear? in our society, who gets to decide what we can talk about and what we can't, can we disagree? Where's the line between an idea and, and harm to someone, actual harm to someone? Like where, where do we draw those lines? Um, And often these come out in book challenges. Like you might be familiar with what's happening down in the States right now in Florida, the, um, the governor down there has passed some new laws. And as a result, the school libraries and classroom libraries are being, I don't know what the right term is, but they're pretty much being decimated. Like there's been 
according to Penn, which is um, the big organization in the States, they've pulled somewhere in the neighborhood of 180 books out of the libraries and shelves. But because of the way that the legislation has been worded, like the libraries are closed right now. These kids can't come out of access to any books. And so, the, you know, again, the question is who gets to decide what we get to read and what we get to learn and what we get to think about inside the school, but also outside the school, because some of these challenges are happening in public libraries as well. Uh, and some of the, you know, the important books that kids need to be exposed to, that adults need to be exposed to, that give new ideas or new perspectives or help us learn, they're just not available. And if they're not available, we don't even know what we're missing, right? Like we don't know what we don't know if we can't access new ideas. So it's really concerning. Book bans and challenges are really concerning. And I think we sometimes have a false sense of security. We think, oh, well, that's in the past. Like, you know, we're better than that now. But there's there's two issues in the news. There's the Florida issue, and then folks might be familiar with what's been happening around the conversation with Roald Dahl's books, um, kids' books. They, The publisher and the company that owns his books have said that they're going to clean them up, and I'm doing that in air quotes. So they're changing some of the language to make it more palatable for today's kids. There's, you know, there's one character that's described as enormously fat, and he's just going to be called enormous. The Oompa Loompas are going to be small people instead of small men. Um, and then the, the story came out today that they're doing the same kind of thing with the James Bond books because it's the 70th anniversary of his publications, um, of those publications rather. And and so, you know, do, do we do we need to be that concerned about language? And if we are that concerned about language, does that mean that we have to be concerned about past readings? Can we have conversations about these things? Are they decided for because of us? I mean, if you want to talk to your kids about what's kind and what's not, and do you call people fat or not, and what's fat shaming or not, I mean, this is the kind of book where you can start those conversations. Mm -hmm. But if that language is no longer there, you don't have those opportunities. That part of it is what I find most intriguing, actually, when we talk any context of book banning, book challenging, and the outrage that people have toward language that used to be normal. Uh, or things that used to be history. It, this was the reality for people. And uh, I mean, I'm sure that some of this is triggering. Everything can be triggering to somebody. But uh, it's interesting, as you said, the decision making of no, no, we we cannot allow this anymore or we cannot allow this today. And a couple of weeks ago, we spoke to Sadine Lowe on the show and she talked about the Book of Negroes by Lawrence Hill and um, that book, I personally have not read. It is on my reading list, but it's something that she described to be one of her top books in her life that she's ever read and the kind of impact that the, the book made on her. And I'm curious between the two of you, whether or not you've read the book, the significance that that holds to an individual uh, who identifies as a black woman versus the challenges that the book has gone through because of all the contextualization around black history to say, absolutely not, we need to pull this off the shelves. So I have read the book and it's phenomenal. And I've encouraged my kids to read it as well. Uh, and I would encourage you to read it. It's an amazing book. It's captivating and it um, is life-changing really. So the book was not interestingly challenged in Canada, but it was um, challenged in the Netherlands. And uh, Lawrence Hill, the author, received an email from a man who said he was planning on burning the book because they objected to the use of the N-word in the title. So that was a, partly a translation situation. Um, in the U.S., the book uh, was renamed because the publishers were concerned that the Book of Negroes would, would limit the 
the sales there. So it's called Someone Knows My Name in the U.S. But in the Netherlands, the the I don't speak the language, so uh, but the the book looks like it's got the N word on it. But interestingly, the title's pulled from a, a an actual historical book where the names of of black people were written in what was called the Book of Negroes. And so that's sort of the genesis for that idea. And it it threads through the story, like it's an important part of the story. Um, and so what I thought was really interesting about this was that Lawrence Hill, instead of sort of getting angry about the the challenge to this book in the Netherlands, he um, he kind of engaged in a conversation with the person who emailed him in the form of an essay, which was published as a, a book, and it's called Dear Sir, I Intend to Burn Your Book, An Anatomy of Book Burning. And in that book, he has to kind of come to grips with, you know, what his Black identity, challenging anti-racist um, stereotypes, talking about history in the context of racism, talking about current identities. Uh, how do you have these conversations if it's not through story and literature? And so um, that book actually is is um, in our collection as well. And there's a really interesting review of it in um, Literary Review Canada, which I was reading. I haven't read the Dear Sir, I Intend to Bring Your Book, but I, I, just the conversations that these books can start are mm-hmm. so important for our society and for learning about one another and for creating empathy that, uh, you know, the idea of burning books solely on the, the title, not even the content um, is really alarming as someone who works for a library. I'm sure Therese has a lot to, to say about that. So I, I haven't read the book, but I feel many things about this, <laughs> negative feelings about banning books, and certainly feel very sorry for someone who would choose to disregard a book at face value without even having read it or understanding the historical context of why it was named that. It's really too bad. Mm -hmm. You think that there's something to say about adults making decisions on what kids can read? I mean, this is not just about the the Harry Potter conversation from uh, a couple minutes ago, but also, you know, Robin Stevenson and other authors who make books challenging for kids, right? And I'm talking challenging concept, challenging messaging, representation of things that maybe not are not out there already. We talk about disability representation for kids and how there are so, I mean, now there's more, but when I was growing up, very few books with disability representation. And I'm sure that there's people challenging that kind of thing, just the way that we challenge language and everything else. Yeah, so there's actually some interesting ideas around that. So Robin Stevenson wrote two books. One's called Pride and one's called Kid Activists. And Pride is all about LGBTQ identities. And so she had expected some pushback from that. And she actually went to visit a school at one point. And the principal had on short notice um, withdrawn permission for the teachers to take her class there because a the principal is worried about the parental objections, which is telling. It's, he's not worried about, or he or she or is not worried about the content. They're worried about the parents getting upset about it. Mm-hmm. So she was sort of expecting that with pride, but she wasn't expecting that with kid activists. And then she was in the States. She was visiting a school. And um, the the principal there canceled her visit because a parent complained about the mention of a gay person, uh, Harvey Milk, in the book. And she wasn't there to talk about that particular person. The whole book is about... 
um, the lives of younger activists and, and, you know, how they got sort of their start in, in terms of how they went on to make a difference in the world. And so um, the, the entire presentation was canceled and it was all because one parent had expressed a concern about this person, Harvey Milk, um, being on the cover of the book. It wasn't even one they were going to talk about. And so, you know, she's very disappointed about it. And then, uh, but she sort of chalked it up to this is the world we live in. But then she got a letter from uh, one of the students that she was supposed to have been talking to, who was a little bit older, who was going to come out and then realized with this uproar around her book that her community was not friendly and that she didn't feel comfortable doing that. And so Stevenson wrote an open letter and posted it on her social media to the school board and the principal. Um, and, you know, her points were that one parent should not have the ability to take away the, the possibility for six or seven classes to mm-hmm. talk about these issues. And, and you know, the school board said that they had not followed protocol in terms of, a, of letting parents know what was going to be talked about. And she kind of said she didn't believe that because other parents have been in touch with her and said that they bought the books for their kids to have her sign them because they were so excited that she was coming. And so I think really the, you know, it comes down to representation. If you can't see yourself in, in literature and you don't see yourself in community and you don't see yourself having, you know, a opportunity to connect with, with mentors or just to, you know, to talk to people who come from the same communities as you, you're not safe in your space. You're not, and you're, you know, then you're not likely to write about this. You're not likely to talk about this. You're not likely to feel safe about this. And you're not likely to find out who you're safe with. And it's just representation is so important. And the other book that I wanted to bring up on on this, which is a recent situation as well, this happened last spring, so almost a year ago now, um, is about David Robertson. And folks may know him. He's a a Cree author. He's Teresa fangirls over him. She uh, (laughs) she met him once at an event and I have a picture of her with him. Anyway, he's a a lovely man and uh, does a lot of work in schools. He's just recently been um, given the opportunity to be the head of a small imprint to sort of increase the number of Indigenous literature books in in schools and available to kids. Anyway, his books were pulled from an Ontario school board based on an unspecified number of complaints. There were three books pulled. Um, The one that he wrote was called Great Bear, and it was pulled. Uh, And he was told that he didn't understand why, like he was not given any reason for it. And the school board did a lot of backtracking uh, once they realized this, the the impact of doing this. Uh, but he was, he got to see some emails that he probably should not have seen. And one of them said that there was too much culture in his book. I mean, what, I don't, what, what the heck is too much culture, too much culture and ceremony. Um, the, the stated complaint was that it was particularly harmful to indigenous youth and families. Well, he's indigenous. And I remember reading an article that said that he went to his local um, uh, community, like his indigenous community and his elders. And he talked to them about this book and they gave their their blessing. And so um, his concern was there's not a process and that one person's complaint can pull a book, an important book mm. from, from schools. And so we need to be really guarded about who we let make these decisions and how they get made. And do we have a process to make sure that everybody can be heard about them? Books are precious. And I think that uh, sadly, this argument is not going to uh, die down or simmer down anytime soon. But as you say, you know, the, the word guarded is very poignant here because I think that we do need to protect, protect this freedom, um, protect this concept of, you know, we don't make the decisions. And uh, it's, it is sad, uh, going back to Teresa, what you said, it's sad that people 
feel that their discomforts and their rage about whatever it may be, um, big or small, can make an entire decision for an entire world of people uh, to pull history, to pull representation, to pull language, to pull realities of centuries off the shelves and erase it. I, I just think that that's unbelievable. So these conversations are so significant to me and to everybody listening. Thank you both so much for joining us every month to uh, talk a lot of important things. And we'll catch you in April. Thanks so much for having us. Teresa Power and Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access joining us on today's episode of AMI Audiobook Review. That's it for this episode. I'm your host, Ramia Amuthan, here with technical producer Nisreen Abdel-Majid. And we'll be back next week for Know Your Narrator with Sarah Hillis. From ABC News Tech Trends, Sony's revamped virtual reality headset goes on sale today. The new PlayStation VR 2 headset is powered by the PS5 console, which means you're going to have to plug it in. The wire for some people is going to be a major drawback. You kind of have to remember that it's there if you get too twisted around. But Ian Hamilton, managing editor of Upload VR, says Sony's new device does come with features like eye tracking. They can draw the greatest detail directly in front of where your eyes are pointed. It also integrates haptics, which can vibrate the headset under certain circumstances. Pricing starts at $549, but that doesn't include the PS5. And Gadget's Devinder Hardwar says that makes the PSVR 2 a tough sell, at least for now. Maybe in a year or two, when the price drops a lot and there are more games available, I think it becomes more enticing. I just feel like this launch price is strictly for the people who gotta have VR right now. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.